The title of the sermon, again, lawful but not expedient. Last week we spoke specifically in regard to amusements and what we place before our eyes and ears as far as amusement is concerned. This week we're speaking in regard to physical appearance. Again, it will be a topical message, and I trust that um, it will be an opportunity for you to gain some perspective, to look into the world around you, to see what's going on, and to not be blind. We were talking just before the service, the Schmaltz and I, about how people like to bury their heads in the sand. And it's not just, and we were talking politically, but it's not just politically that people like to bury their heads in the sand. Um, perhaps there's something that they like as far as amusements are concerned, like we referenced last week, where um, it's something that they really enjoy, and so they're just going to bury their head in the sand and, and overlook the ways in which their devotion to it or its particular characters and virtue or the amount of time they put into it is not being beneficial to them spiritually. We're going to talk about the same thing this week with physical appearance. And again, we're going to cover these three main points. There are things no born-again believer should do. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean nobody should do it. And we're going to look at those three points again. And I'm going to remind you of the same three questions as well. When you approach any of these issues, these issues of the heart, these issues that, where there is flexibility, these questions should come to mind. Is what I am doing sinful? Is what I am doing explicitly, specifically in violation of God's command? Second, if it is not sinful, is what I, is what I am doing, am I doing it in good conscience? Is my conscience offended by me doing this? Even if someone else could do it in good conscience, can I do it in good conscience? If you cannot, well, the scriptures tell us in Romans 14 that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You need to avoid that. If you can do it in good conscience, so it's not explicitly against God's word, it's not against your conscience, the third question we need to ask then is, is this decision expedient, beneficial? Am I operating within the bounds of God's revealed will? How does this decision affect my testimony, affect my ministry? Is this decision a balanced part of a godly life? And so all of those things are going to come to bear this morning as we speak concerning physical appearance. Lawful but not expedient in regards to physical, uh, physical appearance. And as we begin this morning, I was reading an article last week. It was actually very interesting that it came up. The article was about the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is next Sunday. And... As I was reading this article, it, it had mentioned how many people assert that, um, and this was a Christian article, how many Christians assert that movies and music don't influence them. And they were putting this in perspective of the Super Bowl, and they said it this way. If a company will spend $3.8 million for 30 seconds of TV time during the Super Bowl, how is it that we believe that a two-hour movie isn't influencing us? If it's $3.8 million simply for them to have the exposure during the Super Bowl, 
then how foolish are we to think that the things that are going around in culture all around us aren't influencing us? And how foolish to think that people in multi-million or billion dollar industries aren't attempting to influence us? I mean, would $3.8 million coming out of your business and into the business of one of these television agencies simply for 30 seconds of airtime really be worth it if you didn't think that it was going to have some impact? If you didn't think that you were going to make up that $3.8 million in sales and exposure because of the investment that you're putting into this Super Bowl commercial? And that's just for the airtime, not even to mention the money it takes to produce the commercial. And you know, it's the same with physical appearance. A lot of times people say, well, you know, this isn't a big issue, Pastor. This isn't an issue that we really need to be thinking about. We need to, we need to, to worry about other things, doctrinal things. Why, why even focus in on this issue? Well, because this is an area, again, where I believe many Christians don't understand what culture is doing or has done or the direction that they are attempting to point people in. And I don't, Again, just like last week, I don't give you this message in an attempt to try to funnel you into this legalistic group of people that only do a certain thing, or that only wear a certain thing, or that only um, watch certain things. But what I am trying to do is give you perspective to which when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and, and hear those words, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient that we would understand and have an appreciation for the ways in which even though something may not be sinful, it's not beneficial. And then that line, where to draw that line in our Christian lives. And so, as we did last week, I'd like us to consider various elements of culture that have historically clashed with the American church. And we'll, when we think about that, there are, are four elements that, that came to mind. Clothing, tattoos, piercings, and hair. As you think about those elements uh, that many churches might um, be opposed to or there might be judgment in regard to, really, these are the things that would come to mind. Since the cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s, there has been a dramatic change in clothing, in fashion, and in public con uh, opinion concerning things like tattoos, uh, piercings, hairstyles, and such. This change has not just affected secular culture, however, it's also affected Christian culture. Now, that being said, I, I don't mean to tell you that what we're seeing or what we've seen in the past 50 years in America since the Cultural Revolution is anything new. Solomon wisely said in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. We've seen these appearances before. We've seen the motivations that culture has had before. It's just kind of a recycling. You know, that happens in fashion even, doesn't it? I remember uh, about I was, when I was in high school, many years ago now, I guess. But when I was in high school, the bell bottoms were coming back in. And there was this big trend, this shift, this swing from that which uh, had been with the bell bottoms and and, and now, now bell-bottoms are back in. All the girls had bell-bottoms and, and uh, you just saw the recycling of fashion. Well, it wasn't anything new. It was just a recycling of, of that which was old. And all of these things are that way. Appearance is that way and the motivations are that way. And that's where we're going to really focus our time today is on the motivations of culture. Physical appearance is, to a large degree a physical manifestation of the spiritual condition of any given culture. 
And so, we're going to ask the question, what motivates appearance? When you got dressed in the morning, all of you did, unless you went to bed in that, what motivated you when you got dressed? When you are out shopping at the clothes store, what motivates what you buy and what you don't buy? Probably many things. Probably price. Probably weather conditions. And probably culture, style. What is acceptable for the day? When you decide your haircut or your hairstyle or your hair color, how do you make those decisions? Long, short, purple, green, blue. How do you make those decisions as to what you're going to do with your hair, what you're going to do with your body, marks, tattoos, piercings? Now, perhaps you could find some other reasons, but historically I believe there are at least two major motivating factors regarding a person's appearance. Those are, I believe, on the screen behind me. Yes? Very good. Necessity or practicality and culture, style, the motivations of the culture you live in. And as we did last time with amusements, we'll talk about these factors. Then we'll take these factors and we're going to apply biblical truths, biblical scriptures to them to help funnel us in a direction that we ought to go and help us understand what we ought to wear, ought not to wear, how we ought to look, ought not to look, and reasons why we might be motivated toward one end or another. What motivates appearance? Well, the first is necessity or practicality. There are various aspects of our appearance that are derived simply because it's practical or it's needful. Staying warm dictates what we wear and how we wear it. Uh, it's a cold day. It's been a cold month. It's going to get colder tomorrow again. It's going to be another very cold Monday. And that's going to change what you wear. It's going to add layers. It's going to be different fabrics. You notice that your pastor is getting a little fuzzy. I'm not molding, I promise. I'm growing a beard. And the reason why I'm growing a beard is because it's cold outside. And I decided it's time for my face to stop getting chapped. I want to have a little bit of hair on my face. That's something that God has graced men with so that we can go outside and not be as cold. And so I'm going to get a beard so that I can go outside and not be as cold. I'm motivated by the cold. However, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's, there are trends, particularly in the church, in regard to facial hair. I've got a, I wish I'd have brought it today. I should have brought it and put it up there. The, 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 the church key for facial hair. And they've got the boy band pastor with the goatee. And they've got the angry pastor with the full, with the full neck beard. And, and they've got all these different ones. And they see, sought to, to guide people into various denominations based upon the beards that they wore. But isn't it true that culture dictates some of these things as well? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. So people might grow their hair a little bit longer in the winter. Men may grow beards that they wouldn't have in the summer. In the summer, however, you've got lighter fabrics, you've got short sleeves, all of those things to cope with the heat that you're dealing with. There are also vocational practicalities and necessities. A businessman is going to wear a suit. As a pastor, I wear a suit and a tie. These are because of the particular responsibilities and the need that we have to be presentable. The need that we have to show ourselves as mature, as responsible, as well-kept, because um, in many businesses, you are selling yourself as much as you're selling a product. Police officers, their uniforms are practical. In the winter, they've got thicker. In the summer, they've got thinner. 
They've got bulletproof vests. Uh, their uniforms need to be able to handle these sorts of things. They're practical necessities. Your cowboy or your farmer is going to dress different than the city folk, aren't they? They're going to dress in things that are thicker. They're going to dress in layers. They're going to have those elements of, of their clothing that are going to reflect their working lifestyle. I don't need to spend too much time dwelling on this topic because it's pretty obvious, it's pretty clear-cut that we oftentimes dress the way we do by necessity or for the sake of practicality. However, let me point you to the fact that there is indeed also a cultural motivation. There's a secular or a Christian, now culture can be a Christian culture or a secular culture, style we might say, that motivates why, how we look how we look, and why we wear what we wear. In the winter, we need to stay warm. Our appearance will reflect this. Boots will be worn. We're going to wear boots in the winter. But have you ever noticed the different trends, particularly in ladies' boots, and how they, the, the Ugg boots are in or were in for a while, and they were kind of those... Those, those fuzzy boots, and then maybe those will go out and a rubber boot will come in, and then maybe those will go out and something else will come in. And so while, yes, necessity and practicality demands that we wear warm boots in the winter, the style of those boots uh, will be dictated in large part by culture. A beard may be grown out in the winter, but whether it's groomed or shaggy, maybe depending on what's in at the time, what everyone's doing. Um, how culture has shifted in those regards. In business, certain styles are timeless, but other ones go in and out. Certain suit cuts, certain tie styles, the wide tie, the thin tie. All of these things, they're coming in, they're going out, and it's the dictates of style and culture. And you know, we have this in Christian culture as well. Ladies wearing dresses or skirts at church. Uh, ladies wearing dresses and skirts all the time. Men wearing suits or ties to church. Uh, certain churches where all the men are clean-shaven by culture. All of these things are formed by Christian cultures and Christian families. There are just certain things that come in and go out. And so we see that culture has a strong impact upon what we choose to wear. Necessity and practicality and culture. I'd say those are the two main reasons why we wear what we wear and we look the way we look. But there's a deeper question, a more important question. What motivates appearance? Well, appearance is motivated by culture. Now the question is, what motivates culture? Let's dig a little bit deeper. What motivates culture? This is where the rubber begins to meet the road. Thus far, we've seen the motivations for appearance, both of which are understandable. It makes sense from a practical standpoint, that we need to look a certain way. It even makes sense from a cultural standpoint, that things come in and things go out as far as style and fashion. But where the rubber meets the road as far as Christian discernment is concerned is understanding cultural motivation. And I don't just mean the motivation of secular culture. I mean the motivation of Christian culture as well. When we understand the motivation of culture, then we will be properly equipped to discern the parts of culture that are biblically acceptable and what parts of culture are biblically unacceptable. And then we can make informed decisions based upon our family's needs and desires and the church's needs and desires. And so we ask the question, what motivates modern 
secular culture. That would be the unbelieving world. What is it that motivates modern secular culture? And as I thought about this, now I'm not talking about necessity and practicality. I'm talking about culture and style. What is it that motivates secular style? And I, I thought of three things. Self, well, self-worth being the, the main tier. And underneath self-worth, sexuality, rebellion, and then what, uh, what we might call cultural Marxism. Or today it's called political correctness. It's just cultural Marxism. It's just communism uh, packed around po- politics. Political correctness. And all of these things are tied into self-worth, status or position. I want people to think of me as something. I want people to look at me and think that I am something. I am beautiful. I am rich. I am uh, well kept. Whatever it is. We are trying to give a perception of who we are by, by how we appear. And that, that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing except the ways in which our society, modern culture, has gone about doing this. And that is through sexuality, that is through rebellion, and that is through political correctness. Consider with me uh, 1 John 2.16. We'll be looking at this this Tuesday in our Tuesday evening. It says this, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. These three elements that describe the spirit of the world. We might say the spirit of culture. Culture is driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In every generation throughout history, these three things have driven the way, the direction that society is going. The flesh, pride, and lust of the eyes. Can you, can you as we think about appearance, fashion, doesn't that make sense? The lust of the eyes, what is appealing to the eye is what people want to wear. The lust of the flesh, um, what is appealing to others when they look at you is what we want to wear. And the pride of life, what makes people think I am wealthy, what makes people think that I'm cool, I'm, I'm in, I'm relevant, right? These are things that drive fashion. These are things that drive why a person would indelibly ink their skin. These are things that drive why we would put piercings in our skin. And so, as we think about more about what's motivating secular culture, the outworking of these worldly elements in culture is a heavy emphasis upon, as I've mentioned, sexuality, rebellion, and cultural Marxism. Now, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. We see this in the world all around us. Why is it that ladies' jeans over the past several years have had such, uh, uh, and not jeans for that matter, ladies' pants for the last several years have had such an emphasis upon writing or upon sequins or something on the backside? There's a reason. Why is it that the ladies' shirts now are having the printing for the label for their shirt, a nice long shirt that has the label right here? on the shirt. Why is it that there's such a large label across the bus line? Why is it that dark hair, dark eyes, dark clothing are, are in? What is motivating these things? Well, as far as the, the former, sexuality. It really is. Trying to draw men's attention to the bus line and to the backside. 
What is, what is driving the motivation for the dark hair, the dark eyes, the dark clothes? What's driving the crazy piercings or the crazy hair or the crazy tattoos? It's rebellion, is it not? It's rebellion against society. Now, that doesn't mean if you have a tattoo or you have piercings, you're a rebel. I'm not saying that. Please don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is, what is driving culture to promote this? Why do the fashion designers say, I'm going to put sequins on the backside of those jeans? Why do fashion designers all of a sudden decide to start putting writing on the long shirts right at the very bottom? What motivated that decision? What drives this new trend with, not so new anymore, I guess, probably dating myself. What drives the skinny jeans culture trend in guys? Make, make, you know, so you can show off your chicken legs. What drives that? It's political correctness, cultural Marxism, the feminization of men. It really is. That is the underlying cultural motivation for these things. Now, that doesn't mean if you wear tight jeans that you're trying to feminize yourself. But you, we, we ought to understand not just what motivates our appearance, but then what motivates the culture that we're living in. We need to understand these things. As secular culture intersects with elements of personal appearance, what we must understand is that these cultural motivations are the driving force behind cultural influence. We cannot bury our heads in the sand on these things. We've spoken in a secular sense. Now let's speak in a Christian sense. What motivates modern Christian culture in appearance? Well, whereas with the secular world, there's only one thing, and that's self-worth. I want people to look at me, to think something about me. It's, it's a different world altogether in the Christian world because there are two possible motivations. The first is godliness or God's worth. And the second is self-worth. And that self-worth I would break into two different categories. Legalistic self-worth or rebellious or we might say liberal self-worth. Remember over the past couple of weeks we've talked about this both times. We've talked about the fact that there's a legalistic way to do things and there's a liberal way to do things and God calls this leaven and uh, the liberalism leaven and God calls the legalism leaven and we need to be not running back and forth across the stage but right here. We need to be right here not in the, legal, the leaven of legalism and not in the leaven of liberalism but we need to be with God. Balanced. And so, these two possibilities are there. There's an old, old song I, I learned when I was a kid that kind of highlights this idea well as far as Christians are concerned. We would sing it, we'd go, Just two choices on my shelf, oh, what could the choices be? Pleasing God or pleasing self, oh, I would more like Jesus be. And the in intent of the song is we have two choices every day, with every decision. We can please God or we can please us. God's worth, self-worth. Now, the secular world has no concept of God's worth. No concept at all. The only degree to which um, secular culture is driven toward anything right or good is the degree to which Christianity touches that culture. However, we as Christians, every day we're fighting this battle between the spirit and the flesh. God's worth and self-worth. Highlighting me, worshiping me, or highlighting God worshiping God. And it touches our amusements as we looked at last week and it touches our appearance. 
1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us this. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. When you see that word all, do you think there's anything that's exempted from all? The word all means all. All of you here. If I was to say all of you here, let's go have a snowball fight. You wouldn't assume that I was just speaking to the children. Although maybe that would have been a better reference to just be referencing the children in such a regard. But if I said all of you here, let's go have a snowball fight. I'm speaking to all of you. You wouldn't assume exemptions if I didn't give exemptions. All of you here are invited to the dinner on the grounds after the service. I'm not exempting anyone from that. Everyone is invited to come. All. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all, do everything to the glory of God. That means that we can indeed, our physical appearance can indeed be done to the glory of God. Coming back to this idea of what motivates Christian culture. If the culture that is driving our appearance is not driven by the glory of God, then the question is, what is it driven by? What is the motivation for style if it's not the glory of God? Have you ever been in a church whose culture was not motivated by godliness in regard to appearance? Now, this goes both ways. I grew up in a church that was not motivated by godliness in regard to appearance. I grew up in a church that was full of self-worth that manifested itself in legalistic attire. If you were not in the long skirts, if you were not in the culottes, then you were a problem. Then you were not right with God. The idea that we need to have certain types of clothing in order to be right with God. And while indeed, I would say the majority of the church was well within the boundaries of biblical modesty principles... Their motivation was driven by self-righteousness rather than by God's truth. So they judged everyone who didn't hold their standards and they immediately thought them to be wrong or sinful or out of, out of line with God or out of fellowship. They rejected any degree of personal liberty and appearance. They became legalistic, believing that their appearance made them more godly than those who did not appear that way. Have you ever been in a church that went the other direction with appearance? This is self-worth as well. No dress code, short shorts, tight shirts, holes in jeans, messy hair, unkept. While they are indeed embracing the grace in which God has saved us into, what is driving their appearance? What is driving them to look this way? Is it God's worth? Are they dressing in such a way that they would desire to come into the sanctuary and not be a distraction and not be a... Not be a a, a sore spot in the church or not, not draw any appearance to themselves but draw appearance only to God. And so they rebel against that conservative dress by being liberal, we might say, in their dress. And they go in the other direction. And then, of course, they oftentimes have a tendency to judge those who are dressing conservatively as legalists. So, they've become rebellious, believing that their casual appearance makes them more godly than those who don't have enough understanding of the Bible to know that they don't have to wear suits to church. It goes both ways. Legalism, liberalism. 
So my desire is to give us perspective. And so let's put a few pieces together before we apply. Culture drives appearance. If self-worth drives our culture, self-worth will drive our appearance. If God's worth drives our culture, then godliness will drive our appearance. Culture is a major factor in determining how we're going to look. So as individuals, as families, and as a church, it's our responsibility to establish a God-driven culture. And this is where our three principles of lawful but not expedient can help us. There are things that no born-again believer should do. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean no one should do it. I remind you of the verse in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The rest of our time we will use to apply these three principles to our personal appearance so that we can ensure that we are building a godly culture in our church and then in each individual family in regard to our physical appearance. First, there are things that no born-again believer should do in regard to our appearance. First, appearance should not be motivated by attracting attention to yourself. First Peter 3.3 3 says this. This is speaking specifically of, of wives, and it says, "...whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating of hair and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel." Speaking to wives, not outlawing jewelry and clothing, but rather teaching that the emphasis of a woman's appearance ought to be their godliness, not their physique. And that's what Peter teaches. Paul says the same thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says this, In like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but, which becometh women professing godliness, with good works. Again, he's not saying that women can't wear jewelry, but what he is saying is that it, the, the emphasis of a woman's appearance ought to be who they are, not how they look. It ought to draw the attention to what you are doing and who you are in your character, not to how beautiful you are. Now, it's not a sin to be beautiful. And it's not wrong to make yourself look beautiful. But the motivation for appearance, and it's focusing on women here, but men, let's not forget that it ought to be this way with us as well. The motivation for our appearance ought not to be me. It ought to be God. It ought to be, I am going to fall into the background. When a person thinks of me, they shouldn't think of how I looked today. They should think of how God looked through me today. It's important also to note that these verses, particularly coupled with the following verses in the passage, serve to teach the women um, to dress in such a manner that it's reflecting biblical submission to their husbands. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Romans 12.2 says this, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we saw that appearance should not be motivated by attracting attention. We see that also appearance should not be motivated by cultural conformity. Don't just wear what you wear because it's what culture's doing. Cultural conformity should never be 
the motivation for anything you do in your life. And by the way, cultural conformity should never be the motivation for anything a church does. That doesn't mean that the church can't find itself in line with culture in certain areas. But the church's goal should not be to find itself in line with culture. Ever. Be not conformed to this world, he said, but be ye transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind, so that you can prove, so that you can make known what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The will of God should be what you are pursuing, not cultural conformity. Next, appearance should never, ever be motivated by rebellion. 1 Samuel 15, 23, first half of this verse says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Don't think that children, teenagers, sowing their wild oats in rebellion is a normal thing. It's not. The teenage years ought not be years of rebellion. Those may be years where rebellion is a temptation, more so. But that doesn't mean rebellion is right. Scriptures say that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It is uh, wicked in the eyes of God. Continuing with the same um, idea of, of appearance not being motivated by rebellion. We know Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. We talked about it in, briefly a little bit in, in Sunday school. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. If your motivation for looking the way you do is to really tweak your parents and to get them horrified by the way you're looking, then your motivation is not just off it's sinful it's sinful even if even if you can do wear what you're wearing without being sinful inherently in what you're wearing if your motivation is to make your parents feel horrible or to scare them or to worry them it's sinful because you are to honor your father and you are to honor your mother and there's no place for that no place for rebellion in those verses 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 say this, still on the topic of rebellion. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we ought not be reflecting uh, personal rebellion. We ought not in our appearance be reflecting rebellion against our parents. And we ought not, in our appearance, be reflecting rebellion against our government. This is a tough one for we who have the freedom of speech in this country and who have a government that is not really worthy <laughs> of our respect. But, whether they're worthy of our respect or not, God's Word tells us that they ought to have our submission. And so when we think of the cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s and the, the ways in which people's appearance sought to reflect um, rebellion, really we ought not be a part of that. Our appearance ought not reflect rebellion in any sort. Rebellion against God, rebellion against parents, rebellion against government. And then wives, specifically in Ephesians 5.22 Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Wives, you should not dress in such a way that's reflecting rebellion against your husband. Ever. And so these are things that are subjective. How can my wife dress in a way that is reflecting rebellion against me? Well, 
It may be different from the way one of the other wives in this room could reflect rebellion by the way she is dressing or her appearance uh, in regard to her husband. We ought not ever be motivated by rebellion. One more. I believe just one more as far as rebellion. Yes. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. The clothing there is not talking about physical. It's talking about um, humility being the adornment. Um, but the idea here is that we would submit one to another. As a church, you are doing wrong if you are dressing in such a way because you know the church will not like it. If that is your motivation, now that doesn't mean if you go into a church and they don't like it, that's not wrong. But if you go into the church with the intention of riling up discord and dissension by the way you're looking that day, then you are going with the intention of rebellion and that is indeed sinful. If your motivation is self-focused, rebellion-focused, then there's no way it can be right before God. Because rebellion is sinful. Guiding principles of godly appearance. Whether we're talking about any of the issues that we've talked about, whether it's clothing, whether it's hair, whether it's um, tattoos, whether it's piercings, all of those things. The guiding uh, principles of godly appearance are three. Distinction, for men, headship, for women, submission, and modesty. Distinction, headship and submission, depending on whether you're a man or a woman, and then modesty. Let's talk about them. Distinction. Maintaining proper distinction between the masculine and the feminine in appearance. This kind of um, overlaps a little bit the headship and the submission, but we also see distinction as far as we as God's people. As God's people, we ought to be distinct. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone can look at you and say, that person's a Christian because of how they're, lo- they're dressing. That's not, that's not the point. But the point is, is that person shouldn't say, they're dressed that way and they're a Christian. Do you see the difference? A person shouldn't necessarily be able to look at you and say, oh, they're dressed that way, so they're a Christian. But they should never look at you and say, wait a minute, they're dressed that way and they call themselves a Christian? There's a difference there. It's a distinction. Also, distinction, as we mentioned, masculine and feminine. This principle is enumerated in the Old Testament and it's maintained throughout the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says this, The women shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord. Now, I'm not using this verse to tell you anything in particular about what women and men ought to be wearing. Cultural distinctions are different. When I was down at Pensacola Christian College, we had many Tongans. And when the Tongan men were going to wear their, their ritual garb, it was, it was a wraparound skirt. That was their ritual garb. And so you'd have Tongan men walking around the dorms in these wraparound skirts. And that was not unmasculine. You'd never tell a big Tongan guy that he's unmasculine. You just didn't do that. These guys are huge. Um, and it's not unmasculine for them because that was their culture. But the, the, the key is not whether women are wearing pants or men are wearing skirt-like things. The key is what is that what is the understanding of what is feminine and what is the understanding of what is masculine? And men ought to take it upon themselves to look masculine and women ought to take it upon themselves to look feminine. Hairstyle, clothing, piercings, etc. Distinction. Second, headship and submission. According to 1 Peter 3, 
1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11. Let me give you those references again because I don't have them written here. 1 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Corinthians 11. All of these verses speak to the fact that men's appearance is to reflect the fact that he has accepted a headship, a leadership role in family, church, and society. And that women are to dress in such a way that they are reflecting a submissive role in family, church, and society. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul enumerates some ways in which the women of Corinth were, uh, would do good to reflect that. One of those ways was head coverings. Another way was long hair. As a matter of fact, Paul rebuked the, the church saying that, do you not know that men with long hair, that that is a shame to them? And in that particular culture, specifically, um, he was speaking to that regard. Uh, verses 14 and 15, do not, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So the scriptures speak of the fact that a woman's uh, long hair is meant to be a reflection of her willingness to step into the role that God has given her to her in family, in church, and in society of submission. That's a difficult topic for today's age. In the, the days of, um, femini- uh, of, of the, the feminism movement and, and then the feminization of men, both of which are ungodly movements uh, rooted in political correctness and cultural Marxism, women don't want to hear that. Women don't want to hear that they have a role in society and that that role is submission. Now, that doesn't mean they can't work. That doesn't mean that they can't uh, lead their homes when, when uh, the husband is, has passed away or the husband is no longer around. By all means, that's not what it means. But what it means is that that woman ought to reflect submission in her appearance and demeanor in the various ways that culture has dictated that to be found. So distinction. Headship and submission. Finally, modesty. We have already seen the verses where Paul and Peter tell women to dress in modest apparel. The first question we ask is, why is he speaking specifically to women? Well, because in the area of modesty, the temptation typically for a woman in regard to modesty is in her appearance. Uh, a woman's temptation in that area of modesty typically result, revolves around how she appears because she uh, knows that men are, or at least subconsciously knows that men are visual. And so if they are going to be attracted, if they are going to be, um, give her any form of worth as a secular man, not necessarily as a Christian man, but as a secular man, if he is going to give a woman any form of worth, it's going to be originally rooted in, in, in her appearance. That's how society is. Men have a different problem with modesty. Men's modesty is not so much in uh, appearance as far as what we wear as much as it is how we act. Drawing attention to ourselves through actions. Because women aren't as visual. And so men, I gave the example when we were doing a presentation on modesty uh, about a year and a half ago now, I guess, uh, in Sunday school. When my little girls were young, we took them over to my, my in-law's house and their cousins were there. Their cousins are uh, boys, two boys, about two years apart. One at the time, I believe, was uh, maybe six and four, or maybe it was five and three at the time. I, I'm not quite sure anymore. Um, but... 
the boys were interacting with my two daughters for the first time. And the way they interacted with them was this. They were banging their heads against the wall. They were jumping around trying to get their attention. What they were doing is trying to get the girls' attention, trying to get smiles, trying to make the girls look at them and laugh at them. That's what little boys do, right? That's what little boys do around girls. It's built into them to try to get their attention. It is. And at that age, they're just having fun. But, but now let's, let's add... 10 or 15 years to the mix. Guys and girls are going out together. The girls want to get noticed, so they wear certain clothing, they smell a certain way, they do all of those things. The guys want to be noticed, so what? What do they do? They race their cars down the road. They want to get noticed, so they have an arm wrestling contest. Or see how much milk they can drink in 20 minutes before they throw up, right? Both of those are forms of immodesty. One, the feminine knows that men are visual, so they're going to be immodest in their way. Men know that women are looking for that guy. So that men are going to be immodest in their way. We, all, we both have problems with modesty. It's just different. So why are Peter and Paul focusing on women when they talk about modest apparel? Because that's the particular area of modesty where women have a problem. So in regard to that, let's, let's define modesty this way. Modesty is a condition of the heart whereby one exercises purposed restraint through actively removing from oneself any form of personal attention or honor, either in action or appearance. You have that there before you. Modesty is a condition of the heart whereby one exercises purposed restraint through actively removing from oneself any form of personal attention or honor, either in action or appearance. Not just appearance, men, ladies, actions as well. You can be perfectly modest in your appearance and be absolutely immodest in your actions. Have you ever seen women that are modest in appearance but not action? It's very possible. Very possible. So, these guiding principles of godly appearance. Distinction. Headship for men, submission for women, and modesty. As we consider things which Christians simply should not do in regard to our appearance, uh, these things must be tem uh, tempered very carefully by the principles of godly appearance. So that's what we ought not to do. These are areas of our lives that we ought not stray. Now let's talk about those elements as far as 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12 goes. All things are lawful but not expedient. Let's talk about those elements that are lawful. Just because you can do something, however, doesn't mean that you should. These are the things that are lawful, but not expedient. Just a couple of, of uh, questions up on the screen. The first, I can get a tattoo, but should I? I'm just using these examples because these are examples that come up in Christian culture. I was at a, um, a conference in October. It was a Worldview conference. And there was a, a pretty good mix there of young people and old people and one of, uh, the, as, as the, the speaker was speaking about various ways that culture has, has infiltrated the church, some lady raised her hand and started talking and just going to town on all these Christians that have tattoos. And I felt really bad because sitting right across the aisle from her was a guy that just had ink all up and down his arms. And I felt really bad for him um, because here, here she is um, just going crazy on it. So, 
we recognize that a tattoo in and of itself, as far as Scripture goes, the Old Testament, the, the Israelites were told that they may not mark their bodies. They were told they may not mark their bodies because the priests of pagan religions would regularly mark their bodies. As a matter of fact, um, marking of one's body is still a fairly uh, occultic thing to do today. And it still can have uh, great associations with the occult. That might be one of the reasons why it's lawful, but not expedient. So, as we think about this, lawful but not expedient. It's an indelible mark on your body. What's that mark telling others about you? What's your motivation for getting it? Will it be a visible opportunity to glorify God? Who might you offend by having it? Is there a spirit of rebellion that is driving your desire to get it? Is it worth the money? These are all questions that should go into your mind as we think about lawful but not expedient. Yes, it may not be a sin. And I'm, I'm telling you today, if you have a tattoo, I don't believe that you're in sin. But it may have been the wrong motivation for you to get it. It may have not been expedient. And it may not be expedient. I had a teacher in, in college who, before he got saved, he was a, a, a man who was a, a drunk and, and he had tattoos all over his body. And one of the things he did in these classrooms, because it was a Christian college, is he always wore long sleeve shirts. Always wore long sleeve shirts. And one day, it was super hot in the room, the air conditioning wasn't working, and he rolled up his shirt, and wouldn't you know, he had tattoos all over his arms. And he said, yeah, you know, the reason why I, keep, I wear long sleeve shirts all the time is because I don't want anyone to get upset. I don't want to cause someone to, to be distracted in the teaching by that. Now, he wasn't living in open sin because he didn't get those tattoos removed or anything of the sort. But it is not expedient, necessarily. It was not expedient for him to have them. I can wear certain types of clothes, but should I? Another question that we should ask. Certain clothes, ladies, you can wear them, probably without even hurting your testimony, but are you hurting the conscience of another Christian man? Men, you can wear that, but are you hurting the conscience of another Christian woman? Just because we have the liberties to look certain ways, you can dress alongside culture, but is your association with culture going to be a detriment to your testimony? It may be, it may not be. These are questions that we must ask and that we must find a place where we meet, where the Bible meets our actions concerning these things. And it's going to be a different place for all of us. Just because we have the liberties to look a certain way does not mean that all of the biblical principles of temperance and sobriety and brotherly love and virtue are best served when we do make certain appearance choices. And these principles will change based upon the circumstances that we're in, which is why we call them principles. The Bible gives principles of proper appearance, which we've already discussed, and then allow us through prayer through conformity to the Word of God, to then place into our lives our own standards that will enable us to obey God's Word and reach out to our society at the same time. Aren't you glad that there's not just a cut and dry way that we need to look so that as society progresses we look crazy outdated and everyone thinks that we're just a bunch of crazies? We don't have to be that way. We don't have to look out of style to look godly. And thank the Lord that He's given us the freedoms in our appearance. So there are things no born-again believer should do. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. Third and finally, just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean no one should do it. 
God convicts each of our hearts in various ways and at various times. When you stand before God, as I mentioned last time, when you stand before God, you will answer for your choices, including the choices that you made in regard to your physical appearance. You will not answer to Pastor Wickler, who stands up in the podium in his three-button suit and his tie. You will not answer to Pastor Wickler for how you look on any given Sunday. You will not answer, ladies, to Mrs. Wickler, who wears skirts down to her toenails and who has the long hair. You will not answer for her, to her, for how you look on any given Sunday. According to my understanding of biblical principles and God's leading in my life through prayer, I have made appearance choices for myself and for my family. But my appearance choices are not meant to be definitive statements of right and wrong. Though by God's grace, my choices will reflect that which is right. It's not a definitive statement of right and wrong. And just because you don't have any tattoos or don't have any piercings or the women in your family don't wear pants or whatever the case may be, we must understand that the principles of grace allow flexibility within the boundary of God's Word and the expectations clearly enumerated in it. So, 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, or unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. As believers, we have many freedoms in Christ. We are not under a set of physical laws that give us a definitive checklist of what we should and should not wear, how we should and should not look. But just because it's lawful doesn't mean that it is expedient. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And my prayer today is that God would help us to make right choices. That we would take a look at what's in our closet or take a look at um, the direction that we want to go with our physical appearance and that we wouldn't just think how is this going to look to him or to her or to them but that we would think how am I going to reflect is, is this going to distract from my ability to reflect God or is this going to help my ability to reflect godliness and may God help us to determine that in each of our lives and to come to that place where we in good conscience are serving God even with how we look. Let's pray.